You are listening to audio from Community Bible Church. If you would like to find out more information about us, please visit us at cbcsavannah.com. Amen. Good morning. I like it. I like the energy. It's going to be a good time. If you have a Bible, turn to 1 John chapter 2. Hopefully you have a Bible with you or you grabbed one on the way in. If you didn't grab one, uh, flip on your phone or uh, wherever it is you like to access God's Word. We're going to continue our series this morning through this little letter, uh, 1 John, written by the Apostle John. And we're calling this series That You May Know. Uh, And the reason why is because 34 different times in these five chapters, John uses this phrase, or one like it, uh, that you may know. I want you to know. I'm writing so that you would know, right? So clearly, he wants them to know something. He wants them to know something true about life. He wants them to know something about God. And so what we've seen so far is that this letter isn't written to non-Christians, okay? It's not written to convince some people to believe the gospel. It's written to people who already do written to actually a group of churches in the area around Ephesus, which is now what is modern day Turkey. And so it's a group of churches, a group of people who gathered in homes, who had been to the place in their life where they'd seen their need uh, for a savior and they'd seen their own sin. And from that place, they heard the message of the gospel that despite the fact um, that they uh, had rejected God, God hadn't rejected them. And that's the good news of the gospel, despite the fact that the farthest thing from what we deserve is God's love, he gives it to us in the person and work of Jesus. Despite the fact that we rebel against God, God doesn't leave us on our own to find a way out of our mess, but rather he comes to us in the person and work of Jesus. And Jesus came, he lived a perfect and sinless life, he died the death that we deserved, you and I, um, and he rose again, victorious over sin and death. This is the good news of the gospel. And again, John is writing not to convince them to believe this because they already had, he's writing to remind them that this is not just a gospel, meaning this is not just some good news, but rather this is the good news, the only one. This is the gospel, and so he's writing them Um, that, and it's important to know that because what was happening in this church, in this context specifically, is a group of men and women had kind of risen up, they're false teachers, and they were saying things like, hey, your sin and your disobedience against God's word, it doesn't really matter. Um, They were saying things like, you don't really need a Messiah, you don't really need a Savior, and on top of that, that's not who Jesus is. They were saying he's not the, the Christ, he's not the anointed one, and some people were like, how could you say that? Right? So if, if people were to raise up from our church and to start to say Jesus, denying him as the Messiah and saying, it doesn't really matter if you obey God, that would perk our ears up. And some of us would say, how could you say that? And then other people actually went with this group of folks. And so it created this division, this church split. And then there was this group of people in the middle who were left going, man, I don't know what to believe. I had this experience in the past where I thought that Jesus is who he says he is. I thought I found life in him, but now I'm not so sure, right? And so in the midst of that, that division and that lack of unity, John writes them this letter and he gives us a purpose statement. First John 5 says this. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. Here's why, that you may know that you have eternal life. And so he's saying, this is the entry point into the kingdom. This is the entry point to having confidence that you will live forever is that you believe in the name of the Son of God. And this name is not just that you believe that there was a man named Jesus one day, but that you believe that that Jesus was the Christ, that he was the one, the promised one who came to take away the sins of the world. The name encompasses all of who he is and all of what he's done. And so 
Each week as we've been working through this letter, we are pulling out the primary thing that we think God wants, or God, yeah, God, but through John, God uh, is writing through John the, the primary thing that John wants these Christians to know. We're trying to pull it out. So one of the things that we're gonna continue to see in this letter is that John doesn't just want them to know some things, he wants them to do some things about what they know. His point is this is a type of knowledge that moves us to action, that it should shape the way that we live our lives. And there's different types of knowledge. There's some knowledge that shapes the way we live our lives and some knowledge that doesn't. Here's an example. If you have the the verses to Isai's baby memorized, okay, that is knowledge that shouldn't shape the way you live except for on the rare occasion where you just crush it on karaoke night, okay? Like that's the only time that that knowledge should affect the way you live. But then there's another type of knowledge that does affect us. Like, for example, I don't play the lottery, but if I did um, and I knew the winning numbers, I would do something about it. So I checked Mega Millions this week, $97 million, the pot's up to, estimated, okay? Um, And it gives you an estimated number because right now I think it's at 90, but they're basically saying, we think $7 million worth of people are gonna buy tickets and they're not gonna win. So it's 97, right? They just kind of hedge their bets. But if you knew the numbers to the winning ticket, you would do something about it. It wouldn't slip your mind. You wouldn't forget to stop by the convenience store on the way home. You would buy a ticket. You'd probably buy five, right? Because what if something happens to the one uh, and then you know, they do the drawing and you're, and you're like, oh, I won. They're like, oh, you won a fifth of the pot. Like, actually, joke's on you. I won the whole pot because I bought five tickets, right? Like this is a type of knowledge that moves us to action. It should affect the way we live. And so 34 different times, John says, I want you to know. But his point is, it's not enough to know you need to do something about it. So we're gonna start in verse 12 and we're gonna look at six verses today. And the first three verses we read are gonna be, here's what you need to know. And then the last three verses, 15 to 17, are gonna be, here's what you should do about it. Here's how that knowledge should shape the way you live. And so let's read this together and then we will walk through it. Starting in verse 12. He says, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you young men because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you children because you know the father. I write to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you young men because you're strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. And he says in verse 15, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, then the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So if you were reading through this on your own, just reading through 1 John, you might think that this 12 to 14 seems out of place, right? So if you're reading through what he just said was, if you say you love God, but you don't love the brother or your brother, then um, you don't love God. And then he says, don't love the world, right? So those things would make sense, but we had this little section here that's interjected. And, and what's going on here is that John has said some things that are heavy, and he said some things that's difficult. In chapter one, he says, we're all sinners. And if you say you're not a sinner, then you're saying God's a liar because God says you're a sinner. Not pretty heavy. <laughs> and then he says what I, what I just said. If you say you know and love God, but you don't love your brother, if you don't keep his commandments, then well, you actually don't love God and you're the one who's the liar, right? So John is going all in because this is the kind of guy he is. And then he's actually gonna say something even heavier and he knows that that is coming. And so he's gonna interject this section 12 to 14 and it feels just stuck in there, but this is intentional from, from John. 
Because what he wants to do before he gives them this strong exhortation that we just read, do not love the world, because if you do, then you don't love God. Before he gives us this strong exhortation, he wants to give them this sweet encouragement. And so remember that the context John is writing to is they're in the middle of a church split. People that they came to faith in Jesus with and people that they started following Jesus with had said, that's not true anymore, I'm out. And so they're left hurting and they are left wounded. That's right where they are. And in the middle of that, John writes them this to encourage them. And one of the things I love about this passage is you can see how walking with Jesus has actually changed John. So the first week of this series, we, we talked about who John was that you may know John, right? The man behind the letter, his passions and his heart. And so we saw that he was this super intense guy, right? The kind of guy who would do something and then he's gonna maybe ask for forgiveness, but he definitely isn't asking for permission, right? He's that kind of guy. He's just all out there. He's gonna say, hey, you do that, you're a liar. You do that, you're saying God's a liar, right? He's, this is, we can see this evidence of him here in this letter, but um, when you read through the Gospels, there's this account where Jesus gives John and his brother James the sons of thunder. Bill talked about this in week one. That's his nickname he calls them. They're just loud and they're just in your face and they're out there. And on this one occasion in Luke chapter nine, John and James are with Jesus and they're going about and they're doing ministry and they're doing it in an intense kind of way and they're just trying to learn from Jesus. And they go through Samaria and the Bible says that when they get there, the Samarians reject him. They kind of give Jesus the Heisman. They don't want anything to do with him. And the Bible says this, that when John sees that the Samaritans reject Jesus, he says, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven on them? Basically, should we melt their faces off? Because I think we should. And, 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 we, and if you say the word, I'll ask, right? We'll do it. We'll melt their faces off gladly, right? This is John. This is who he was. But again, we see hints of that intenseness in this letter. But what we also see is that this guy is now 80 or 90 years old, which means that he has been following Jesus for close to 60 years. 60 years of learning to trust Christ through life's joys and life's hardships. 60 years, as we talked about last week, of progress and maturing as a follower of Jesus. This is what it means to be a Christian. Not that any of us are perfect and then there will be times and seasons of our life where it feels like following Jesus is two steps forward and one step back or even three steps back. And for a lot of us, 2020 is that year, right? It feels like we're going in the wrong direction, but following Jesus, the, the overall trajectory of our life is one of progress, one of maturing, one of learning to not be led by the desires of our flesh, but rather to allow the spirit of God to produce his fruit in our lives. And so John was once this loud mouth, right? This say the word, we'll melt their faces off. He was that kind of guy, but here he is, 50, 60 years later, he's writing this letter to them as a gentle and a loving pastor. This is legitimately my prayer for my own life, that I would become gentle and kind because I want my kids and I want my wife to see how the, the spirit of God has transformed me, that I might be able to reveal to them, this is how God loves me in a way that's gentle and kind, right? Do we see this in John? He says in verse 12, he says, I'm writing to you little children. So in our culture, if someone calls you a child, probably not a compliment, all right? Probably not. Maybe it is if it is actually your parent, but even then it's probably derogatory. But like if someone calls you a child, they're probably not giving you a compliment, but here this is a term of endearment. These are the tender words of a man who has been transformed by the love of God. And remember, John has said some heavy and difficult things and he's gonna add to that. So his heart in these verses is to encourage these Christians. And here's what he wants them to know in this passage. He wants them to know that you belong to the family. This is what he's saying to them. 
And we're gonna see here in a bit that there's two things that are true about us if we do belong to the family. But John's writing them and he says, I want you to know you belong to the family. Look at verse 12 with me. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the father. So he addresses this audience and he uses this family language, right? He says children and fathers and young men. And there's actually been a whole lot of debate by people who are way smarter than me about what does John mean here? So some people think he's talking to three groups of people, children, young men, and fathers. There are actually three different audiences that he's addressing. And even within that, they're going, is it actual children, young men, and fathers, meaning physical age, or is it spiritual maturity? Is it children Christians and young Christians and mature Christians, and they disagree. And other people think it's not actually three groups, it's two groups of people. And when he says little children, he's referring to all Christians, because he does that in other places in the letter. And then when he says young men and fathers, he's talking to two different groups of people. Again, is it physical maturity or spiritual maturity? We don't know. But in my opinion, I think what makes the most sense is there's two different groups of people. And when he says little children, he's talking to all Christians. But I think the point is the same regardless that John is addressing them this way because he wants them to know they're a part of the family, that you belong. You belong to the family of God. And then he gives us two things. Here's the first one. He's gonna say, we're forgiven. If you belong to the family of God, you need to know this is true about you. You are forgiven. Verse 12, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his namesake. He says, because your sins are forgiven. And I love this word forgiven. In the original language, it's actually two Greek words that's pushed together to make one. And the first Greek word means to send, and the other Greek word means away. And so this word forgiven, it means to send away, right? And the idea that John is trying to encourage these believers with is that all of our sin, past, present, and future, has been sent away. It's gone. It's like what David says in Psalm 103. He says, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that was within me, bless his holy name. He says, forget not all his benefits. And then he says this, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. John says, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins have been sent away, because you're forgiven. And then he adds this, for his namesake, for his namesake, whose? Jesus's. Again, the accompaniment of all he is and all he's accomplished for us, it's because of that that we're forgiven, not because of what we do, right? So our forgiveness is not based on what we do or what people think of when they hear our name, but rather our forgiveness is completely based on what Christ has accomplished for us. This means that he signs his name at the bottom of the bill. The, the, the debt, the receipt for the ticket of going, hey, who's gonna pick up this tab for your sin? Jesus says, I got that. And I said earlier that John is talking about all of our sin, past, present, and future, because this whole section of scripture here, 12 to 14, John is using what, in the original language in Greek, what's called the, the perfect tense of a verb, which all that means is it's complete. It means it's a past completed action that has an ongoing effect all the way into eternity. And that's what he says when he says forgiven. It's a perfect tense, which means that God, uh, God doesn't just pull us up out of the ditch of our sin, clean us up and say, you know, pat us on the back and say, don't you let it happen again. God doesn't just forgive past sins, but that's how many of us think about it, isn't it? Now we believe that there was a time, because of God's love for us, because of Jesus, there was a time in my life where I felt loved, 
There was a time in my life where I felt forgiven of my sin and I felt like I had this relationship with God because of Christ. There was a time, but now, after the years of, of my failures and my mistakes stacking on top of each other, now I feel either too far gone to be loved by God or I feel like I have to spend my life doing enough good things to earn God's love and approval. That's, that's what happens because we believe that God forgives sins, but we just believe he forgives past sins. And when we live like that, what we're saying to Jesus is, you've done enough, right? You picked up the bill last time. You paid for the last one. Let me get this one, Jesus. But the problem with that is this bill is always more expensive than we think it is. And so we spend our lives desperately trying to prove our worth to God and to the world and to the people we love around us, trying to prove that we matter while simultaneously being crushed underneath the weight of our debt. And that's how most of us live when we call it the Christian life and we wonder why we come into a room like this and we're not full of joy because we're being crushed underneath the weight of sin and shame that Jesus died to take from us. And John says, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins, perfect tense, are forgiven. Past, present, and future, that is all of our sin. It has been sent away, it is gone. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. He did it. It was for his name's sake. And he didn't pick it up from us and remove it from us and then we start going in the other direction going, look, I can help Jesus. I can contribute to what you've done for me. No, he did it for his name's sake. And this is hard for us, isn't it? It is hard for us to receive this type of generosity. It's hard for us to receive the love of God for us because we know we don't deserve it. So we try to earn we try to contribute to what Christ has done for us, but church, Christ's forgiveness cannot be earned. It can only be given. It can only be received, and on top of that, you will never enjoy a love that you have to earn because you're always gonna live in fear that today might be the day that you don't do enough to keep it. And that's no way to live. But we are forgiven for his name's sake because of his love for us, not because of our love for him. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. Let's look at verse 12 again. He says, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his namesake. And then at the end of verse 13, he says this, I write to you, children, because you know the Father. So not only does he want us to know that being belonging to the family of God means that we are forgiven of our sin, he also wants us to know that we know the Father. That belonging to the family of God means that God is our Father. And this order here is intentional. He says we're forgiven before he says we're a part of the family because not everyone is God's Father, or not everyone has God as their Father. No one has God as their Father if they don't first have Christ as their Savior. We have to know this order is intentional. You cannot have God as your Father if you don't first have Jesus as your Savior. So he says, I write to you, children, because you have been forgiven all your sins, past, present, and future, perfect tense, and because you know, perfect tense, the Father. Again, this completed action that has ongoing result into the future. We know him as our Father in the perfect tense, which means we don't just know some things about him, but we actually know him. We actually experience relationship with him as his beloved children. It means the way that we and you as a believer in Jesus, the way that you should think about and approach the first person of the Trinity, God the Father, is that he is your father, that you are a beloved child. God has given us that type of access to him. My kids will call out for me anytime they want 
First thing in the morning, middle of the night, it doesn't matter. Hey, you know, daddy, I come in the room. What do you need, buddy? Water. I mean, like you're just looking. Like, I don't even know. This is the kind of access that God has, has, he's invited himself and us into that type of relationship with him. That he is our father. And this is far easier said than done to live this way. Many of you, when you, because of your life experience, when you hear the word father, it's like a cuss word for you. Because when you think about relating to a father, the words that pop into your mind are aggressive, abusive, cold, distant, manipulative. And so you struggle to relate to God as father because of your life experience. That's all you've known. It's difficult for you to enter in with a loving father because you've never had one. You've never known one. Or maybe you're on the other side of that spectrum altogether. That wasn't your experience. You have an amazing dad. So when you think about relating to a father, you think about words like loving and present and supportive and caring, right? And so you love to think about relating to God as your father because you had this amazing example in this earthly dad and praise God for that. If you had an amazing dad, that is a gift from God. But here's what you need to know. Even that falls short of what it means to understand that God is your father. Because even the best earthly fathers aren't God. God knows every single thing you feel. He knows every single thing you need. And not only that, he cares deeply about every part of you. He has unlimited resources available to him to come around you and and, in his infinite wisdom reveal to you that his love for you goes on and on and on. God never gets tired. He never grows weary. He never gets annoyed with you. And because of Jesus, God the Father is never disappointed in you. He will never turn you away. He is all-powerful, all-knowing. He is outside of time. God has always been, and he will always be. God is not just a good father. He's not just a great father. He is the perfect father. And later in this letter, John says this, 1 John 3, verse one, should be on the screen, says, see this, what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. Most of us, our Christian relationship and experience doesn't include that last bit. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, period. But we never are. We never enter into that relationship. We never take advantage of it. We just go, yep, God says I'm his child. That's great. I'm gonna keep doing it on my own as if I am an orphan. We should be called children of God. See what kind of love he's given us. We are. We live in that experience. And again, we're not exactly sure what John's gonna mean here. He's gonna keep going on. He's gonna say this. Look at verse 13. He says, I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. And I write to you young men because you've overcome the evil one. So we don't know exactly who he's talking to. Again, some think he's referring to age, other things he's referring to spiritual maturity, but either way, I think the point is the same. And just for clarification, when the Bible, and particularly here with John and the way that he uses the Greek language, when he uses these masculine pronouns, he's not just talking to men. There is width within, within these words to apply to women as well. So earlier when he says, uh, you know, if anyone says he loves God, but he doesn't love his brother, then he doesn't, right? He's not saying, hey, you should neglect your sisters. He, it's a word that includes the family, right? This is family language, and that's what he's talking to. So remember what John is doing in this section. Ultimately, he wants to encourage them in the midst of this difficult season, they belong to God's family. That because of Jesus, 
And for his name's sake, you have been forgiven of your sin and you know the Father. And I think what he's getting at here is this. When we are young, and you can determine whether or not you're young. I'm not gonna do that for you. But um, when we're young, we try to find a life. We try to prove ourselves to the people around us by the things that we do. But when we get older, we try to find life and prove ourselves to the people around us by the things that we know. And so I think that's what John's getting at here because he says to older Christians, I'm writing to you because you know, again, you're trying to prove yourself with what you know, I'm writing to you because you know him who is from the beginning. And the him John is talking about is Jesus. His point is not, hey, it's bad for you to have knowledge. His point is life is found, actual satisfaction in this world is found in knowing Christ alone. And then he turns to younger Christians and he says at the end of verse 14, I'm writing to you because you are strong, because the word of God abides in you and because you have overcome the evil one. Again, when we're young, we try to find life in the things we do. And John says, you've overcome. You are strong, but he goes on to say, it's not because of what you do, you are strong because you believe in what Christ has done for you because the word of God abides in you. And when we hear word of God, we think the Bible, right? And that's usually right. Um, But here when he says the word of God, he he uses the word logos, which is a word that John uses interchangeably for Jesus. And he says in John 1.1, in the beginning was the word, was the logos, the word um, was, was God, the word was with God, right? So he's talking about the logos of God. And John says, you are strong because this word abides in you. Because the message of Christ abides, because it's alive in you, because the message of who Jesus is and what he has accomplished on your behalf, that's your strength. It's what he has done, not what you can do. And John wants to encourage this group of believers. He wants them to know they belong to the family, that all of their sins, past, present, and future, have been forgiven, and because they can know the Father, he wants to encourage them. You are children of God, inviting them into this relationship. He wants them to know their strength isn't in what they do. It's in what Christ has done. And again, as we said earlier, he wants them to know that this is true, but this is the type of knowledge that should move us to action. This is an ice ice baby knowledge, right? This is winning lottery ticket knowledge. This is, I, I, it will not slip my mind. If this is true, then it changes who I am. And so here's what he wants them to do. Look at verse 15. He says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, then the love of the Father is not in him. And so John here in verse 15, he gives a command and then he gives an explanation of the command. And the command is don't love the world. And the explanation is if you do, then the love of the Father is not in you. And what he's saying here is that loving the world and loving God are mutually exclusive. That those two things cannot coexist inside of us. And this might seem, this verse 15, it might seem like it doesn't fit based on what we just read in 12 to 14. But honestly, John's point here is pretty simple. He's saying that if you have God as your father, if, if you are a part of God's family then you, and you know that he loves you the way that he does, then you're going to love the things that he loves. Because you know you have the God of the universe as your father who has infinite wisdom. He knows best what goes in your life. And so why would you not trust him, right? That, that, that's kind of John's train of thought. It's, it's like this. If, so hypothetically, because by God's grace, this will never happen. But hypothetically, if, if one of my boys came to me one day and said, Dad, man, I really love you. I really love you. I'm really thankful for you. But I just need you to know something. I also really love the Florida Gators, those two things can't coexist, right? They are mutually exclusive. I would look at them in the eye and get down their level, 
maybe they're taller by then, right? I would say, son, if anyone loves the Florida Gators, the love of his father is not in him, okay? <laughs> because you can't possibly love me and love the Gators. These two things are mutually exclusive, right? They don't work that way. And so after this encouragement, John gives this strong command. He says, do not love the world. Do not do it because if anyone loves the world, then he does not love God. And there's two points to clarify here on. What does John mean when he says world and what does he mean when he says love? So let's talk about the world first. You may think that this is straightforward. He's saying, hey, don't love the world, but it's actually confusing because what's John's most famous verse, right? John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. So if, if God loved the world so much that he gave Jesus, then why should we not love the world? Well, he is gonna tell us what he means in verse 16. He says, for all that is within the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, it's not from the Father, but it is from the world. So he gives us here three categories to understand what he means by the world and the things in the world. And he says this, the desires of the flesh, or if you're old school or you heard a different translation, it's maybe lusts, the lusts of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and then he says the pride of life. And what becomes clear in that is in, in John's definition of what he's talking about when he says world is John isn't saying that we shouldn't love the world because the world is inherently bad. That's not what he's talking about. Now, there are bad things. Evil exists, but that's not what he's saying. Because when he defines what he means in verse 16, he doesn't talk about the world by listing all the bad things out there. He talks about the things that are in here. Don't love the world. Don't love what is inside. And so he says, the desires of the flesh, which are these sinful cravings, right, that come from inside of us, the passions that are inside of us. It's this. The desires of the flesh is when we seek to meet legitimate desires that God has given us in illegitimate ways. When we try to go around God rather than to God in the way he says we should live in order to be satisfied. We have these desires that come up in us. And most of us, we think about sexual morality, but that goes all the way to overeating and anything in between. It's when we try to meet legitimate desires that God has given us in illegitimate ways. And then he says, the desires of the eyes. This is seeking something that someone else has or seeing it and feeling like, man, my life will not be what I want it to be unless I have that thing. This is about possessions. The first one was about passions. This one is about possessions. It's about seeing it. It's the desires of the eyes and going, I'm not satisfied until I have that thing. And this doesn't have to be things that are inherently bad and sinful. Honestly, most of the time, it's, it's not things that are inherently sinful. An example of that would be HGTV, right? HGTV has built their entire business on capitalizing on the desire of the eyes. Chip and Joanna, some of you are like, don't you dare. Don't you dare talk badly about Chip and Joanna. Chip and Joanna, as awesome as they are, they create in us a discontentment for what we have and a longing for what we don't have. It's the desires of the eyes, right? But what happens if and when you get those things? What happens when the renovation is complete or you get the bigger, better house or you get the, the job, the promotion that has the salary that you thought, man, this is it. Now I'm finally gonna be satisfied. We made it, right? And it feels great for a season, but what happens? Eventually you're disappointed. And you need more, and you need more, and you need more. It's the desire of the eyes. Or maybe you are able to accumulate so much of that stuff, those possessions, that you land in the third category that John calls the pride of life. And this isn't just getting the house or getting the promotion or whatever. It's getting those things and then wanting people to know that you have them and think you're awesome. This is the pride of life, right? 
This word life here, when he says pride of life, it's different than what we read earlier in 1 John 5 when Jesus says, I want you to know that in Jesus you have eternal life. That's the word zoe. That means a fullness of satisfaction, a fullness of life, one that never disappoints. This is the pride of life, bios, the pride of what the world can give you. Not just getting those things, but getting them and going, they think I'm great because I got this. And that's stuff, but that's also your talents. This is your ego. They think, they look at me, they, they wanna see me now because I'm awesome at business or because I do that or whatever it is for you. And so when John says, do not love the world or the things in the world, he isn't saying it's bad to desire good things that God gives us. He's talking about us embracing a pattern of living that completely opposes God. That says, I don't need God because I can just give in to whatever passion I have in the moment and be satisfied. Embracing a pattern of living that says, I don't need God to satisfy me because I can do that with my stuff. When embracing a pattern of living, it says, I'm not gonna give God glory and honor because I'm gonna take it for myself. John defines the love of the world in those three ways, passions, possessions, and position, us taking a position that rightfully belongs to God alone. And he's not saying that if that's true about you, if you have those desires of the flesh, the eyes, the pride of life, he's not saying if you have that in you, then God doesn't love you. That's not what he means by saying the love of the Father is not in him. He's saying if that's what you love, then you don't love God. You have been deceived, right? Because those two loves are mutually exclusive. Well, why is that? Well, what does John mean when he says love here? When John uses the word love, he has in mind the way that God loves. And we see this in the letter, 1 John 3, verse 16 on the screen says, by this, we know love, that he laid down his life for us. This is how we know, it's sacrificial. 1 John 4, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us. It's clearly seen in this way that God the Father sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And so when John says love, he has in mind the way God loves. He's talking about a love that's sacrificial and committed, a love that is covenant and not contract. You know what I mean by that? That's wedding language. That's for richer or poor. God loves us in sickness or in health. It's not you uphold your end of the bargain and I'll uphold mine. That's contract. Contract is uh, I pay my cell phone bill. If they quit giving me service, I quit paying the bill because they didn't hold up their end of the bargain. That's how we think that God loves us, but God loves us in a way that's covenant. This is what John means when he says, you cannot love the world and love God because you can't have two marriages that thrive at the same time. That's not the way it works. And he uses strong language here because friends, there is a lot at stake. Look at verse 17. He says, the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. And I find comfort in this verse because it's almost like John is, is not dismissing the fact that we have those desires. John is not the pastor who says, hey, get over it and love God. Do better, try harder. That is not what he's saying. He, he is saying, um, he, he's coming alongside us and he goes, I know that your passion in the moment, it seems like the most permanent thing ever. It seems like you must have it. I know your desire to possess and to get bigger and to get better, it feels like there's nothing more important in the world. I know your desire uh, for other people to look at you and to think that you are great feels like it is the most lasting thing ever. But he says the world and its desires are passing away meaning they're fleeting. This, the word passing away in the original language is actually a metaphor, but the, but the literal meaning of those words means to be misled. 
that that feeling that you have in the moment is misleading you. He says in verse 14, you're strong, you overcome the evil one. This being misled is the enemy inviting you down a path that he's eventually gonna shame you for being on. And he's saying, if you love God and you know that God loves you, then you don't love the world because you know that your, your father provides for his children. He says, the one who does the will of God abides forever. The one who doesn't reject God and embrace the pattern of the world, the one who trusts that their father knows what they need. John says, this is eternal life. This is the life that satisfies Right? Not the renovation, not the bigger, better house, not the bigger promotion, the job salary, whatever. It's knowing and trusting the Father. And I think a lot of what we call Christianity today, it wouldn't pass the John, 1 John 2, 5 to 17 test. A lot of what we call Christianity today wouldn't pass this test because it's not Christianity at all. It is a casual and comfortable Christian spin on the American dream which is all built on the desire of your eyes and the desire of your flesh and the pride of life. Saying you're important. Don't let anyone tell you what you, you want. It. You got a dream, chase it, go get it, right? You can satisfy yourself apart from God. That's what we call Christianity. A lot of the time, where we have a foot in each bucket and ultimately what we're doing there is we wanna try to love God and love the world at the same time. And John says, that's not how it works. Those two loves are mutually exclusive. They cannot coexist. And here's the thing, none of us are exempt from this. We all have these temptations in us, whatever they are for you. This is why John wrote what he did. This is why the answer isn't just, I'm gonna go try real hard now not to love the things of the world. That's not the solution to this problem. John says in verse 14, what makes us strong is that the word of God abides in us, right? The message of Christ, the spirit of Christ is alive in us and that is our strength, which means the only way for you to overcome the temptations that you face, the only way for you to overcome the desires of the world that are in you are to replace those desires with a desire for God. To overcome a love for the world, we replace that love with a love for God. This is why John interjects verse 12 to 14 before he gets to verse 15. Because love for God is built up in us as we become more convinced of God's love for us. This is why he does this. When we believe in John's encouragement that we belong to the family of God, that all of our sins, past, present, and future, have been forgiven because of his name's sake, and we believe that we know the Father, that he has invited us into this type of relationship. So I wanna close this way just by throwing a question out for you to consider. And we said that the Christian life is not one of perfection, right? So you don't leave here going, man, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do it. You again, the way, that, the way that we overthrow these desires in our heart is to replace them with a love for God. So we don't leave here going, I'm gonna go do better. Since the Christian life is one of progress and not perfection, and since these two loves, love of God and love of the world, can't coexist, let me ask you this question. Is a love of God in you displacing a love for the world? Is a, is a love of God in you pushing out a love for the world or is a love for the world pushing out a love for God? What trajectory are you on right now? The answer for all of us is not, again, do better, try harder. Our strength, John says, is not in what we do, it's not in what we know, it's in who we know and what he has done for us. 
And so the way that we overcome our love for the world is to grow in our love for God, to become more convinced that God loves us, to steep ourselves in the scriptures, that the word of God might abide in us, to surround ourselves with the family of God. We can't miss that when he says, we are, or you are a part of the family. This is the encouragement. Before he says, don't love the world, he goes, we're in this together. And so if you feel stuck, if you feel alone, man, we would love to pray for you, asking God to replace this love of the world with a love for God. We'd love to come around you. You do not need to do this alone. This is why we do community groups. We're part of the family. We're forgiven of our sins. We're loved by the Father. Let me pray for us. If you would stand with me, we're gonna sing and respond to this good news that we have hope today in Jesus. Lord God, we thank you for First John. We thank you for his passion and his intensity. We thank you, God, that your love changed him. And that gives us hope today, this morning, that your love can also change us. And so I pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit, as we sing these words, that you would make them real to us, that we would believe them in our hearts, that it would transform us, that we would know that you love us, we would know that we belong to your family, that we would know that not because of what we do, but for his name's sake, we can know the Father. Help us, God. We need your help. We pray in Jesus' name.